Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. And joining me today is IER Senior Economist, David Kreutzer. Dr. Kreutzer, thanks for joining me on the show again. Hey, thanks for having me on. Glad to do it. Yeah, so this episode is a little different than things that we've done in the past. I uh, wanted to pull the theme of the episode from a concept I pulled from your Twitter bio, uh, which says, fight privilege, defend markets. And I think a lot of people might hear that and be a little confused about exactly what that means. It's sort of counterintuitive, but it's something that really resonates with me. And I was just hoping maybe to start off, can you explain what you mean by this idea and um, how it applies to the world of energy policy and environmental policy? Yeah, you know, my, in, in graduate school, I was a student of um, uh, James Buchanan and Gordon Tullock, who started the, the Public Choice School, and uh, kind of opened my eyes. Buchanan was a, a bit of a populist, and uh, he resented privilege. He resented, you know, undue advantage that anybody might have. And... Uh, you know, as a younger days, he was probably more of a socialist and then realized that, you know, big government was actually a tool of people that were good at rent seeking and rich people and people uh, with social advantages and so on are better at rent seeking than uh, people with, with less money and, uh, you know, without the connections. And so that's, that's kind of what's driving it. You know, if we, you know, privilege can come in all sorts of different ways, you know, some of it may be earned and some of it may be unearned, uh, but getting rid of it is really costly. But when we look at you know bigger government programs and more government programs, it doesn't seem to really be helping the poor or the you know, the little guy more. It seems to be helping the big guy. Um, you know, some evidence. You know, you can look at what's happened as government has grown since the 60s in the U.S. You know, from 1970 to 2019, adjusted for inflation, the federal budget uh, more than doubled. Um, you know, in, in nominal dollar terms, it's huge. And over that span, um, housing prices in D.C., just as one metric, not a, not a perfect metric, uh, they, they went up like three and a half times, whereas nationwide, it went up like 100 percent. And this, again, is, a, I think, is adjusted for inflation. Um, and you, you look at where... The, the richest counties in the United States are. Over that same time period, 1976 of the richest counties were in the Midwest, two were in the DC area. Now it's eight or nine, uh, depending on whether you count Falls Church City, of the richest 20 counties in the United States, so the richest 20, nine of them are in the DC area. None are in the Midwest. Back in uh, 1970, it was six in the Midwest and two in the DC area. So just to give you an idea, but this government growth really seems to be helping the people who run the big programs more than the ones they're targeted at. If you look at um, the, the, the proposed expenditure by uh, uh, Biden on you know, green equity and green jobs and all this sort of stuff, divided by the number of households below the poverty line, you would get a transfer, a potential transfer, I think it was over $300,000. Maybe it was over six hundred. dollars I have to go back and look at the numbers. They're not going to get anything like that. These programs that are using poor people as a justification, the poor people aren't going to be the ones to get helped by it. Now, that, that's, that's what I don't like. Now, why markets? 
in markets, you have to go out and earn your respect, <laughs> right? You can't, you can't have somebody force you to give them money. Um, and so I, you know, when I, when I see, you know, the way I see competition working isn't to stifle billionaires and to have bureaucrats go after billionaires, it's to have billionaires go after each other and, and up and coming people who wanna be billionaires come up with new and better products and services to challenge the, the, the status quo, which we've seen over and over. We've seen it in, in spades in the, in the past uh, several decades. Um, and so I, I would like to see less government um, to, to allow the people use their own initiative, especially in the energy sector. Yeah. And, you know, obviously that's a sentiment that I share and it's why I wanted to pull out that quote from your bio. I think it's a really good encapsulation of sort of what we stand for here at IER. Um, so you, you mentioned Buchanan and Tulloch, and obviously public choice is uh, the theory that they are known for developing. And it's something that is sort of implicit in the work that we do at IER, and we've touched on on the podcast in the past. But I don't think I've ever had an economist come on and explain exactly what we mean by that. So if you could just yeah. provide an okay. overview of what public choice, what, what the school of thought is and how it developed. Yeah, okay. I, I would say it is, it is the simplest view of it would be Public choice uh, economists look at people in the public sector as having the same selfish motivations as people in the private sector. That is, and so if you when if you take that point of view, instead of saying, "Well, if the government could do this," we have to say, "Well, who's running the government? You know, what motivations do elected representatives have? What motivations do politicians have? What motivations do they have to listen to lobbyists? What motivation are the lobbyists, and so on?" Then you, you come up with a different set of prescriptions for good policy. Um, I, I might uh, offer the carbon tax as a, a case in, in point. There, there are a lot of economists out there that want to jump on what they see as an externality so they can use their fabulous tools, which are, in this case would be a, an offsetting um, tax, you know, the carbon tax. They haven't looked too hard, most of them, at what the science is actually behind CO2 and warming and the impacts because they're so anxious to, to use this tool. And we've had generation after generation of economists that have gotten their graduate degrees and written theses and doctoral dissertations on finding some place where they say that what they call an externality, where what somebody does affects somebody else and a correction for it. So we have these what are called Pigouvian taxes, these offsetting taxes. Um, public choice would say, okay, first of all, this tax is a revenue generator. And that creates a whole different set of incentives other than market optimization, you know, taking care of. And not only, and, and because it's this revenue generator, because it creates this big pile of money and in the carbon taxes they're talking about, it's hundreds of billions of dollars per year. Um, so it's not, it's not a small amount. And that will also affect your willingness to believe the, the critical, criticality of the, um, of the climate situation. You know, if the solution to a supposed climate crisis funds your pet project, you're gonna be way more willing to believe in that crisis in the first place. And I sometimes only slightly tongue in cheek say, if, they, if the solution to the climate crisis were lower taxes and smaller government, there'd be an almost 180 flip in Congress and who supports it and who opposes it. So that so we have to look at what are the what are these tools that we're giving people to try and solve this problem, 
And what if they actually are using those tools for their own benefit as, and as opposed to being these omniscient dictators? You know? So that's, that's, and the carbon taxes, all kinds of arguments, they're clearly not using it to set the marginal uh, external cost equal to the marginal external benefit. It has nothing to do with that. It all has to do with generating money. The carbon tax is a great example, and uh, I think you know if we look back into recent history, um, when it comes to environmental policies in particular, we see a lot of examples where policy ideas are put forward uh, that, um, in the long run, end up transferring wealth from the rich through subsidies and tax incentives. And obviously, public choice is sort of a, a framework that we can use to look through these these policy proposals. Yeah, let, let me let me go back and give there. There's I, I forgot. There's a, one of my favorite examples of this rent seeking, you know, under the guise of you know stopping climate change. A decade or more ago, there was a, a, one of the you know wildcatter you know heroes of the uh, fracking natural gas business, and I and I had great respect for what he did in most things was Aubrey McClendon. And he had a whole bunch of natural gas leases that cost him quite a bit of money. And, uh, you know, back a little over a decade ago, natural gas prices were three, four, you know, five times higher than they are now. Um, and in, just go back to 2006, coal generated 48% of the electricity in the U.S. And natural gas about 22%. Well, he realized that if he could kill coal, that would make his gas worth a lot more because that was the most obvious substitute for generating electricity. The windmills and the solar panels weren't going to come on. The nuclear had been stifled. That it had all sorts of roadblocks. Um, nobody was going to build any more hydroelectric dams. They were ruled out by the environmentalists. So he he gave uh, millions of dollars to the Sierra Club to run their uh, was it past coal? I can't remember. But it was a kill coal campaign. Uh, right, beyond coal, I think that's what it was. Uh, and the, that was to the National Sierra Club, and it was a very effective. The, the problem was the local Sierra Clubs also did not like fracking. So they ended up having, I think, to give the money back, they fired the president of the National uh, Sierra Club. But this was you know, ostensibly to clean the air, supposedly, but was driven by this, this uh, motivation to make your resources worth many times what you paid for them. So uh, that, that's another case of public choice working in the, the energy sphere and the, in the climate sphere. Yeah, I think that's another great example. Uh, sometimes I think public choice is sort of presented as an implicitly anti-government view or something. And I, I think that's wrong. It's supposed to be value neutral. Um, but what you're really showing there is that it's a useful tool for examining cooperation between government and business. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's far from anarchy. Uh, I mean, Buchanan, you know, was, was very big theoretical on why we need governments and how you would set them up and what's the purpose of them. Um, but his, his concern and my concern and the, the public choice scholars concern is that if you're too quick to give lots of uh, tools and weapons to the government to fix little problems, or the tools are outside of compared to you know the the problem you're trying to solve, um, you can make it much much worse. And so you have to be careful. And we've just seen 
you know, regulatory uh, schemes used to to dampen competition. You know, they, those, the ones that came up in the 1930s, especially the um, Interstate Commerce Commission, the Civil Aeronautics Board, all of them were price fixers. And intense, the intention when they started was to protect consumers. By the time we got rid of them in the late 70s and early 80s, it was so clear they had what's called industry capture. The industry had captured the regulatory agency and was using it to, in essence, set up a monopoly to prevent new entries, to prevent even the members who are already in the cartel from competing with each other because they, they this, for instance, the Civil Aeronautics Board actually ruled which airlines were allowed to fly between which cities and what prices they could charge. So that that's how perverted it got. And so you you know you have to be aware that this you know keep your eyes open. Uh, this is quite possible. In another recent case of environmental policy lending itself to sort of rent seeking and uh, these things that we're discussing during the Obama presidency, I I know this is a case that you're particularly familiar with uh, the American Clean Energy and Security Act, um, which was the cap and trade bill. Right. Um, that bill coincided with your time at Heritage. I know you did a lot of work on it. Could you walk our listeners through that bill? Yeah, um, it's, it was commonly, uh, it was called the Waxman-Markey bill. It was a cap and trade bill. And well, it, it was almost a perfect example of the problems with rent seeking that public choice people w- w- would point out. There, there, there was, a, there was a, a competing similar bill by Maria Cantwell that was 39 pages long. And it, that one, took the, the, the rights, the permits for emitting CO2 and auctioned them all off entirely. Waxman-Markey took these permits, which they called allowances. That is, so the, the bill would restrict the amount of CO2 that could be emitted, and you had to have one of these permits or allowances for every ton of CO2 that you, that you your firm emitted, uh, either at the refinery or at the power plant or whatever. Obviously, those costs get passed along to the consumers. Um, those allowances were hugely valuable. They, they were going to be on the order of $300 billion a year there also, similar to a, to a carbon tax, in, in how much value there was going to be. Well, that's, that's a lot of gravy to dish around in Washington. So everybody wanted some part of it. The, you know, the, uh, the refineries would say, well, wait a minute, if we're going to have to cut back, it's going to be really expensive for us. And um, you know, we're going to need some help with that. And they say, okay, you get this many allowances and you get this many. And, and they the, the bill ended up being 1,400 pages long. They didn't even get to the cap and trade part till page 700. They were negotiating the bill as it was being debated. That is, staffers were running up. They had the copy of the bill sitting in front of the podium where the people would go up to make their speeches. Staffers would go up, pull out a couple of pages, insert a couple of pages because they were they were doing deals on the floor while they're debating it. Who gets how many of these allowances? Because they didn't they they were short of the number of votes they needed, and they ended up getting a very slight majority. And the the bill was was just horrible. Matter of fact, there were parts of it. That you couldn't even follow. They made the allowances, you know, the, the the distribution so awkward that there was one place where it referred to a paragraph B, and there was no paragraph B. And the best I could figure out, they had actually, for some years, given away more than 100% of the allowance. So that's that's where you end up with it with, with this mess. And there's, it was just huge amounts of money going to various special interests. And yeah, the, they want to be on it. If you look at what we have coming up with Biden. My goodness, you know, they're not even pretending it's just about climate and energy. 
as climate and energy and equity of this sort and equity of that sort and people who have differential impacts from CO2 and fires and floods and everything. And so you, you have a, a much bigger group of, of special interests that can, then can jump in on this and use this money uh, for what they've been trying to get all along. It's labor interest, you know, the unions are gonna be getting something out of it. So I, I don't expect it to solve the climate problem because you know, those of us who've looked at it and the scientists, and I hate to say these scientists, but the, using the model that, that's been, uh, been certified for the EPA on CO2 impacts on, on temperature, you could get rid of all the CO2 that the US emits by 2050, hold it at zero till the end of the century, and at most, it would make two tenths of a degree difference in warming. And when they're, you know, so we're not going to get rid of all CO2. We're going to have some, some much less of an impact than that. Uh, and the, the Green New Deal will have even a fraction of that. So it's not, it's not actually a climate policy. You know, it's, it's a create some wealth out of the pockets of energy consumers that redistribute to others policy. Yeah, and you point to an important insight from public choice there is that the the political process allows the well-informed and well-connected to enter the political process on people with the most resources to enter those negotiations and help sort of write the rules and things. And the costs of all that end up being passed on to sort of everyday people. Yeah. I mean, we, we can go back 12 years to the uh, Obama-Biden you know, first election. Uh, well, then candidate uh, Obama um, promised to create 5 million new green jobs. So we, we're at the, at the very depths of this recession, just about to come out of it. Everybody wants to, how can we get people back to work? Unemployment rates were very high. Um, and it's, this seems like fun. You know, they have pictures of people in white lab coats. So, you know, people have been working on these, you know, what they would consider, you know, crummy jobs are now going to have these, you know, lab coat jobs. Everybody's going to be making big money, um, not have to get their fingers dirty, all that kind of stuff. That was the that was the the cover for a big chunk of this recovery bill, the stimulus package, $857 billion package. Um, it had job training programs and it had you know subsidies galore for all sorts of green projects. The, the Department of Labor, the, the inspector general did two uh, reports on the job training programs. Both of them just slammed the programs. They, they didn't achieve anything they were supposed to be achieving. You know, the targets they were supposed to hit, they met, met miserably. You know, they were well un, under hit them. Even though, for instance, one of the job training uh, programs, excuse me, 20% of the job training programs, the green job training programs, would issue certificates for, with less than one day of training. One day or less of training, for, that was 20% of this, these job training programs. Uh, about half of them, not quite half, had a week or less of instruction. So you can imagine, you know, what, what kind of job training are they actually giving people in a day or in four days? Okay, not much. It was, it was you know, tokenism for, you know, we, we pretend we're doing something about green jobs. Um, but when you look at the bigger picture, the Department of Bureau of Labor Statistics also looked at how many green jobs there were. Well, not only were there not 5 million new green jobs, there weren't 5 million green jobs altogether. There probably weren't even 20% of that, probably weren't a million green jobs. So they, they stretched the definition of green jobs. Um, 
so that, for instance, the septic tank and portable toilet servicing industry had 33 times as many green jobs mm -hmm. as solar utilities. The largest category, wow. I can't remember exactly the name right now, but it was like uh, janitors and cleaners except maids and something else. Okay, so not, not that these aren't we find people with good jobs, sure. but we don't think of them as green. Right. All right. And certainly not the, the white lab coat jobs that they, they, they were promising. So these two sets of studies, two each by the Bureau of Labor Statistics on the number of green jobs and two by the inspector general on the how well the green job training met its targets were so embarrassing that the Obama Biden administration canceled funding for the remaining uh, reports because they didn't want them to come out. Um, Daryl Issa was grilling, uh, and he, he was the chairman of a, of a subcommittee in, in Congress. He was a congressman from uh, California. And he was, he was questioning the uh, acting director of the Bureau of Labor Statistics about these categories for green jobs. And you find out that uh, people that work at used clothing stores had green jobs. They counted because they were recycling clothes. Same thing for used anything, used bookstores, used record shops. Um, but the most amazing thing was anybody who's involved in education around uh, energy and climate would have a green job. Of course. So uh, Congressman Issa asked the, the, the acting director, he said, so would it be the case that a lobbyist for an oil company would have a green job? And the guy, I mean, he was, it was embarrassing. He was sitting there staring almost at his feet, except the desk got in the way. He's looking straight down. He wasn't looking at ice. He said, yes, that, that would be a green job. <laughs> and so the definitions were ridiculous and they still didn't meet the targets. But what did they do? They, they didn't bury that $857 billion. The stimulus package money was spent. And, um, you know, we look at the, at the green projects that it went to, you know, we're, we're guaranteeing loans and giving grants to, these companies that in aggregate had trillions of dollars of capitalization, you know, companies that didn't need to be subsidized, you know, BP, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, uh, State Oil, uh, Chevron, Google, you know, they were getting in on the gravy train. So what is that? You know, who, who do you think is a better rent seeker? Who do you think is going to be better represented in Congress after the people carrying their protest signs leave? Okay. Then it's the people from K Street. The lobbyists are in there. And the, it's not going to be the people who need the jobs. It's going to be the people who have the, have the leverage, that have the connections, you know, that have the power in D.C. to extract the money. And that's what happened. And if you think it's going to be different this time, it's kind of silly. You know, let's shame on you. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Yeah, and circling back to our original point about markets being the great equalizer then, uh, for those of us who are concerned about public policy and how it affects the least advantage, uh, could you outline how a free market and limited government perspective, how that coincides with sort of the fight privilege, defend markets? What should we yeah, be focused I, on in terms of... Well, yeah, I, I think, you know, first of all, I'm not an anarchist. Uh, I'm not. I'm not even a, a hardcore libertarian. So you know, I, I, I'm not opposed to food stamp programs or something to help the poor, um, or you know, help them get medical care and all that sort of stuff. But when we look at programs that are only tangentially related to that, like claiming that green energy, all right, or that climate change is you know a serious problem for the poor, the, the poorest problem is that they're poor. And what we want to do is make them rich. We don't want to try to come up with a world that's ideal for poor people. Um, 
And so what what we want is policies that are going to help create the jobs that will make poor people richer. That will, and for that, you need people to make an investment. And for investment, that people want to make sure they get a return on it. And what the return? We want them to get a return on actual productivity, not a return on uh, investing in rent seeking and lobbying. All right? Because you, you, we want to we want to reduce that because that's only a beggar thy neighbor kind of return. If you if you get a big return from rent seeking, it's because somebody else is losing money. The famous zero sum game, or in case of rent seeking, actually negative sum. Um, so we, we would like to see, you know, where people get richer by producing more. <laughs> that, that's, that's how markets will work, the, the actual, you know, markets, not, not political markets. I think that's a great place to leave it. Um, I guess today has been our senior economist, David Kreutzer. Dr. Kreutzer, thank you for your time today. Hey, thanks for having me. Take care.